Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 329, recording on Thursday, September 5th, 2019. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. We're going to start the show with listener feedback, but first, a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read, and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer, always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Some good listener feedback. This is my favorite kind of listener feedback. Anonymous. <laughs> Little birdies. Little birdies coming out of the woodwork. That's not where birdies come from. Um, about audio versions of textbooks. And this one I thought was it, uh, three t- people working in academic publishing, all of them asking to remain anonymous for reasons I think will become clear after I you know relay what they said. Someone works for a big higher ed pub- uh, publisher there's a company, they say there's a company line that they say in public about accessibility and commitments to it, but this person actually works on the production side, and it just, it just isn't there. They do QA to ensure that a screen reader, those, like their own, their own kind of AIs, frankly, can go through and read the HTML, including descriptions of images in her text, and some products actually do record audio for the whole book, but that can be really expensive, and not all books have a budget that will accommodate that, and we have to take sales versus costume account, blah, 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 all that business stuff that is verbatim. I just do production, have a little insight in how budgets are made. So it's something that they're thinking about trying to do better, but it is just cost prohibitive. Um, so I guess we're not surprised to hear that. I mean, what else would the line no, be? Sense. There's no other reason. Like if there, If it wasn't cost prohibitive, they'd be doing it. I guess maybe licensing or some sort of other copyright situation. I guess the thing would be, I, I wonder, I guess we've sort of talked around this idea that in the ebook, audiobook, print book triad, 
if there's not an audiobook version of something, and I'm in the mood for an audiobook, I will pick something else versus the title I might want that I was looking for an audible. Like if it's not mm-hmm. there, I'm not going to go buy the print book necessarily just because I can't get an audible. In that audible moment, I'm looking for an audiobook. I think. So the value over the replacement is it's not fungible, right? Like they're saying, well, if you can't, you know, if you get if you can't get an audio, you're just going to go buy it in print. I don't think publishing is working that way, and maybe that's how academic publishers are thinking is like, if we made it available in audio, they just buy one or the other. They have to yeah, buy it anyway, so just make yeah. one. Right. They may be worried about audio being at a lower price point, cannibalizing yeah. sales of print, which are very high price point textbooks are whew, right. spicy. Well, and, and you know, I get bent out of shape about paying equivalent for a Kindle version of a print textbook, but imagine paying $300 for an audio version of your right. anatomy textbook. Right. Would that make you happy? No, I don't think that they would sell those. Yeah. Um, so they're doing some accessibility stuff, kind of to check it off the list, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things. If there was awesome AI... <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm, I'm only halfway kidding, right? If there was awesome AI and there was production costs were effectively nominal... Mm-hmm. Then you could have your 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 um your cake and uh, study it too. I, I'm just I wonder about that. Um, okay, so let's see more about academic publishing. It's all about the PNL for a book that sells a small number of total units as it compared to trade book. It's just not fiscally viable to make an audio format of a book. Not even all of our books have eBooks, oh, which I didn't even think about. I didn't think about that either. I just assumed at this point. Kind of the same law of transference. If uh-huh. I'm bent out of shape about the Kindle version, paying seventeen dollars for yeah. whatever, who's going to pay three hundred bucks for an ebook or even one fifty? Yeah. So I mean, you see, I guess what we're seeing playing out in the publishing world is kind of like it's a it's a um, caricature version of some of the arguments made about print. It's like trying to protect the value of print isn't really about the print. It's protecting the value of the book buying proposition as a whole. Like we don't want people to get used to buy, paying four dollars. Because our businesses are predicated on people paying some modifier of $26. So in publishing, uh, academic publishing, textbook publishing, that Mm -hmm. price point is even higher. And you kind of expose, expose is wrong because it sounds like you're actually trying to, you you are laying bare. God, that means expose. I don't know what I'm trying to say. Those are the same things. (laughs) Why use one word when you could use two, Jeff? Yeah, I guess guess you're exaggerating the delta between, you know, the, the cost and the number of words you're actually getting. I yeah, you know, what I'm trying to say. that is a question that I've had forever. And as I've worked in publishing, I think I at least know part of the answer. But I wonder why textbooks are so expensive to begin with. Like the material, I don't mm-hmm. think is what it is. It must be paying for the expertise of the people who write the textbooks and also potentially that like the paper mm-hmm. is thicker and there are color illustrations in many cases. But um, if one of our birdies would like to actually educate us about why textbooks like why does your biology book need to cost three hundred dollars in order to be profitable for the publisher i would love to know that i will continue to beat the drum that i think academic publishing is the place where bundling could really work um, Mm -hmm. because multiple formats of academic materials would can would be a nice benefit to students and you could probably do some interesting things with price breaks there but like Publishing seems resistant overall to this notion of bundling and of perceived discounts or of eroding the value of any of these. So I won't yeah. hold my breath, but right. I will continue to think that bundling your $300 textbook with a free or nominal uh, additional cost, like EPUB ebook version, would be mm-hmm. a great idea. That's a real reader service. Yeah. Um, I liked uh, this was from a listener in Nashville, uh, Mallory said I, I loved her opening oh oh, i know this one this is about parnassus <laughs> opening Come on down, in nashville or excuse me parnassus books in nashville getting a a new neighbor in the form of an amazon bookstores um so there's a backstory here which nashville had an indie bookstore before parnassus called davis kid which was part of a independent bookstore chain which starts to become an unwieldy idea <laughs> an independent bookstore <laughs> chain um but it was you know a loved location and had a beautiful location down the street from where Parnassus is now, and I'm reading verbatim. Around 2005, they moved into the mall that Amazon is now moving into, and then the mall's rent went up five years later and put them out of business. 
And so Ann Patchett wanted a new bookstore. Her idea for a bookstore was in response to that. So they put a bookstore outside of that mall in a little strip mall down the way so that Nashville could have an indie again. So the reason Parnassus is there is because of the mall, which is the same reason Amazon is there, if that makes any kind of sense. Um, so Amazon, it sounds like Mallory says Amazon is going right back in that slot where that beloved Davis kid bookstore was before. And says, and she says, you know, honestly, Parnassus is wonderful and quaint and great events, but it's more a curated collection of new and great. It's not a large store. Lent a lot of space for backs list. The next closest bookstore is a 20-minute drive to a Barnes & Noble, um, which is interesting. And she thinks, Mallory says that Amazon's filling a need and doesn't think it's going to take any business away from Parnassus. They're just different. You're not going to go, people aren't making the decision like audio, audiobook versus print book for sure here. They're not like, well, I was going to go to Parnassus, but there's this Amazon bookstore in the mall. Or vice versa. So anyway, she doesn't have any feelings about the Amazon bookstore on its own merits, but in relation to Parnassus, Mallory, I'm putting words into your mouth. This is nothing, subject line, nothing burger, is what Mallory (laughs) is basically saying. Yeah, I love this line. You don't go to Parnassus to find multiple copies of your kids' AP lit class novels. You go because it's Parnassus and because you're a book person. And as we have established, the book people identity book person are mm. not going to the Amazon bookstore. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, one I didn't put in here, another um, follow-up, is about the Toni Morrison papers. Uh, Raina wrote in to say, she heard us talking about Toni Morrison's papers and where they might end up. They're already at Princeton and oh. are being, they're already selectively digitized and they're, go- they're doing more over time. There is a link in the show notes to the Toni Morrison papers open for research blog post on the Princeton University Library homepage. So this was back in 2014. Um, The major portion of the Toni Morrison papers um, are now open for research. They're in the Manuscripts Division, contain more than 200 linear feet of archival materials. I love that that unit of measure. It's like, isn't that what they say in Hogwarts? Like, they got to give me two feet of parchment about moonstones or whatever. <laughs> like, linear feet, like, how, give it to me in, what, what, I don't know. <laughs> so and is strange. that like one piece of paper? I don't know. Head, like, end to end with another one or stacks Do of things? Do you measure them like? diagonally? Yeah, linear how? feet. I don't know. If someone knows about this, I, I'd love to know. Does it, also, is it why just is that you, the measure? I don't, I don't know. I guess because pages is also meaningless if there's like note cards. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's a very, it's like they've, they've converted this into Kelvin, like absolute Kelvin <laughs> to tell us the temperature. I'm like, oh, it's 5,000 degrees Kelvin outside. I was like, am I going to freeze to death or am I going to burn? Or is it like, well, really you know, because what's I don't super know. clear is we took this paper and that note card and this napkin that <laughs> yeah. she wrote on and we laid them end to end and it's this many <laughs> linear feet and you get to guess what's on there. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, for my from my point of view, they should have just said there's a butt ton. Like that means as much to me as 200 linear feet, or is it not a butt ton? Maybe it's not a butt ton. Right? How big is 200 linear yeah. feet relative is it an to armful? other? Could I fit archives? it in my car? Like, yeah, it's like 20 <laughs> questions. Yeah, like I, I really do need to know. Like we just had an annotated episode this month about the Babysitters Club. Kelly Jensen wrote a great piece um, or a great script for us about that. Yeah. And in one of her interviews, she talks with the librarian who manages Anne M. Martin's papers yeah. and archive. And like, how many linear feet is in that one? I I just need to know what is the like standard linear feet standard deviation mm. for. An author archive is this the standard unit of measure at all for author archives? It must like, be. Or, or somebody set us straight, please. Yeah. We're we're out of our element. I'm going to read you an extended paragraph from the description here. Try not to pass out. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? Okay. Uh-huh. Are you sitting down? Let me take a deep breath. Yeah, this out smelling salts. So um, mostly, yes. it's in the form of yellow notepads. Apparently, okay. Mm-hmm. A single yellow notepad may contain a variety of materials, including content related to other works, drafts of letters, inserts, or later typed and printed versions, and other unrelated notes. Corrected TypeScript and printout drafts often show significant revisions. Material from various stages of the publication process is present, including setting copies with copy editors and typesetters marks, galleys, page proofs, folded and gathered pages not yet bound, blue line proofs, advanced review Mm -hmm. copies, and production design material with page and dust jacket samples. In addition to documenting Morrison's working methods, the papers make it possible to see how books were marketed to the reading public and media, and also trace the post-publication life of books as they were translated, repackaged, reprinted, released as talking books, and adapted for <sighs> film. If you need me, I will be living in the Princeton Library. I need I need an emoji of um, Scrooge McDuck jumping into the pile of coins 
you know, isn't that the, the DuckTales thing? <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. Rebecca yeah. jumping into linear feet of Morrisonia. <laughs> and just like roll. And I, as you were reading that, I started picturing all of these items. Yes. And I'm going to issue a guess that it's like linear feet of shelf space. Okay, that's a lot then. 200 linear feet of shelf space. There's also, I think this is where I'm most interested, is her letters, her literary mm-hmm. and professional correspondence, which is approximately 15 linear feet, which that makes more sense of shelf space, because if it was just like putting paper down on the end to end, that'd be like, you know, 10, yeah, that's 10 not pages. a lot. Now I think about, but letters from Maya Angelou, Houston Baker, Tony K. Bambara, Miri Baraka, Gwendolyn Brooks, Ozzie Davis, Ruby D. Uh, Leon Higginbotham, Randall Kennedy, Ishmael Reed, Alice Walker, and many others. Oh. Additional literary correspondences found in Morrison's selected Random House editorial files, where authors include James Baldwin, Angela Davis, Julius Lester. Just incredible. This incredible is now stuff. just a podcast of my reaction noises. Just like. reading. Just we're, actually, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna read every linear foot of the archives into a podcast feed, uh, and we will then listen to it. That's, that's I would what our like is now. an HBO series in which each episode is inspired by one of the letters or mm. letter writing relationships that Toni Morrison had. Imagine writing Toni Morrison a letter. Could you write <sighs> a word? Like, what word would you start with? You, ca- you can't say hi. You can't say no, nothing works. I feel like you can't be the one to start that correspondence. Like you wait for Toni Morrison to write you a letter or you are lucky enough to meet her and then discover that she's slightly less uh, intimidating than you anticipated. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you follow up with a letter Um, like her sense of humor and like playfulness came through in some of the obituaries that I read. But like, I cannot imagine I'm pretty sure I've told you this story, but I don't think I've told it on the podcast. I, I had occasion to meet Toni Morrison. We, you and I met her at a book signing mm-hmm. line, but like a, a small group where actually I told her my name and talked for a few minutes. But before that, when I was working as a grad student, we were trying to recruit her to come give a talk. And A, the speaking fee was significant, which fine, whatever. You're one of the greats. Get that, get that coin. No big deal. And the university had it. Not worried about it. But in trying to figure out what's the process, her assistant said to the person who actually was doing the writing, just write her a few perfect sentences about why she should come do the event. <laughs> and How then be that? paralyzed with fear forever. I'd still be, my hand would still be quivering over parchment trying to figure out what that means. Exactly. How do you so. even begin to write a few perfect sentences for Toni Morrison? Like the assumption at the very beginning is that you can't. <laughs> right. Right. Is the correct is it a trick question? Is the correct response actually, well, there's no way that I could do that. Let me just fall on your mercy. And they're like, yeah. actually, that's what we were waiting for. It was a show of humility that of course you can't write perfect sentences for Toni Morrison you, and now you, she you will. Just, you just express an obsequiousness so extreme. <laughs> you know, my humble personage is not worthy. <laughs> sounds about right. That sounds about, that's right. about right. So anyway, whew, I sorry, you weren't ready for that. We went on a journey. <laughs> I have my essential oils ready. I'm okay. Yeah. So anyway, when they'd like to open up a Airbnb at the Morrison Archive, let us know, Princeton. Okay, let's get on to news. Um, thank you guys so much. That was Raina who wrote in with that um, wonderful Morrison bit. Super excited to get that feedback. Time for another sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, should we should we do <laughs> should we should we do a quick uh, immediate feedback on our bets we made about these titles? <laughs> you mean the segment about how I'm forwarding you Instagram posts yeah. with lots of swearing in the captions? Uh, yes. The, 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 this this segment's called <laughs> "Gambling on Books is Dumb." Don't do it. Uh, this is only play money. So <laughs> right out of the gate, did you even say this about the secrets we kept? I think I did. I, said, I think unless I said, Reese Witherspoon or something picks it, I, I think did. it's not going to do a thing. <laughs> like those were basically my exact words. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, lo and behold, uh-huh. Reese you texted me a screenshot from Instagram of a barefoot Reese Witherspoon wearing glasses reading the secrets we kept by Laura Prescott uh, on some cabin in Alabama somewhere. <sighs> 
with some unhappy text from me. Yep. Unhappy so Reese Witherspoon text. did the thing, picked the book. I don't remember. Probably, did we hold or we sell? I think I sold and you held. I don't remember, but yeah, she we has didn't borked, buy, which I guess totally, we totally borked uh, our gamble on yeah. that one. So other things I, that are going the other way. Man Booker <laughs> Prize shortlist came out. That included Quixote by Sound Rushdie, which we sold. <laughs> we sold like we were Jim Cramer with one of those sell, 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 sell buttons. Okay, okay now, but getting on the Man Booker shortlist does not necessarily indicate the book's going to sell, so we could still be right. Us. It's not good news. It's certainly not good news. It's not, they've already remaindered all of them. I'm trying to hold on to something here, Jeff. Well, I'm just saying, also the Testaments by Margaret Atwood. <laughs> On the main book or shortlist. Also, we'll get to that news story earlier. Also, the (sighs) Testaments became Barnes and Noble's book pick of September, which is not a huge surprise. But I, you know, would it kill them to have picked um, something else? (laughs) Everyone, you know, would it kill them? You know what? At least they didn't also pick the secrets we kept. Yeah, and then the the indie next pick for October is um, Jacqueline Woodson's um, Red (laughs) at the Bone, which we held. So we are we still be right <laughs> at best oh for four on things we've gotten data about. We held, I, I guess that's necessarily a buy, but it certainly doesn't help our. And again, I don't, I would lo- I want to be wrong on Jackie Woodson. That's one I'm very happy to be wrong. If I end up sort of not making the money I could have by buying Jackie Woodson, that's fine. It was funny though. Is this Bader <laughs> Meinhof? Mm, I don't think so. I think okay. this is, if anything, reading into it is like recency bias because we decided, you know, we were going to wait six months, yeah. see how these books perform, and then revisit. And so these are early, like leading indicators of how they might perform. But if what we're talking about ultimately is cash on the table sales of these titles, hmm. it's not over yet. No, it's not over yet. But if we had to pick bad news for us, uh, early indicators, these would be the ones. <laughs> And again, there's no stakes except our not a, ego. Yeah, not a good day for our egos. <laughs> anyway, it's like my ego is like it's in a thimble. It'll if it's a little bit smaller, who cares? Say, who there's cares? nothing like uh, putting your thoughts on the internet for a decade no, to good. really remind you that. <laughs> yeah, not having a lot of ego about it. for 400 hours about <laughs> the book publishing business is an exercise <laughs> right. in being wrong over time, and just inviting correction, which is yeah. also fine. But totally fine. Uh, we're yeah. we're used to it. It's fine. <laughs> So speaking of the Atwood, um, uh, it came out this week. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so what do we know here? Okay. What, what, so what happened here? So what we know is that on Tuesday of the week that we're recording, on September 3rd, yeah. um, a bunch of people who had pre-ordered the Testament uh, from Amazon received email notifications that the book was being shipped. The book is not supposed to come out until September next 10th, week. next week. Yeah. Some people uh, received follow-up emails that were like, whoops, actually comes out September 10th. Your book is going to come then. But for some people, the like the barn door was already open. Their book had shipped. So some readers did receive their copy of The Testaments by Margaret mm-hmm. Atwood a week early. This is a big deal for yeah. a lot of reasons. Um, many of them we went into on the bonus episode where mm-hmm. we did buy, sell, hold, and we talked about the Testaments because it was so the, such a big deal for the publisher. There are so many different territories involved. Margaret Atwood has a U.S. publisher and a Canadian publisher and a U.K. publisher and other territories that they coordinated a worldwide one-day laydown where the book was not supposed to be available for sale anywhere in the world mm-hmm. until September 10th retailers had to like sign their life away in embargo paperwork saying that they like promising that they would not sell the book until September 10th and acknowledging that there would be various penalties if they were caught doing so. Uh, So Amazon shipped some of them. They claim that it is by accident. Um, You and I are at various levels of generosity (laughs) in our interpretation. Well, is it more generous to say they're dumb or that they're nefarious? What's is more generous? I'm not sure. (laughs) <laughs> that's true um i'm i don't believe that it was 100 percent an accident or that they're fully sorry um what like can happen is that the publisher can fine a retailer who breaks an embargo um the size of those fines is essentially a slap on the wrist for a business the size of amazon but it's large mm-hmm. enough to be a motivating factor to like independent bookstores and smaller retailers not to break these embargoes. And there are just a lot of things going on. Like they don't want the, the publisher does an embargo because they don't want the details of the story to get out early. Um, it's in the one day lay down can serve to create a level playing field for all retailers. Um, so that if you live, so that a retailer, 
retailer that lives like near a shipping center and happens to get their box of books on a Sunday can't sell them before the retailer that's located farther away from a um, from a wholesaler mm-hmm. and gets their books to, to put out on Tuesdays. So the idea is everybody will receive the cartons a little bit early. They can all sell the book on the same day. But if you're an Amazon warehouse that's done thousands and thousands of pre-orders, you've got the books already. They're just sitting there ready to go. Um, In the wake of that, a lot of independent booksellers were, I think, very justifiably upset about this because people starting to receive a book this big means that the book starts going on the internet. Um, Once the book is out in the world, a lot of publications consider the embargo to be moot. Like once any reader has access to the book, Mm -hmm. the publications run their reviews. It's like the Washington Post and NPR and several other publications. The Guardian had reviewers who received embargoed galleys. So my guess that there were no galleys of this on the um, previous episode was also wrong. Mm -hmm. They just also had to sign their lives away not to run the reviews early. But once the story's out there, the story's out there. So they ran all of their reviews. Now like the whole story of the Testaments is sort of taking off. Um, You can't currently just like buy a copy on Amazon and have it shipped to you immediately. They're still functioning as pre-orders. So Amazon's not benefiting like from that currently. But this starts a ball rolling of momentum where customers start to see the book, readers start to see the book out in the world or on the internet. Um, They want to know why somebody was able to get it early and they can't find it in their independent bookstore or in the Barnes and Noble down the street. And it creates an advantage for Amazon, even if not an immediate advantage, the idea that, oh, if I order a big pre-ordered book from Amazon, um, I'll definitely get it on the day it's released. I might even get it early. Um, and, and I've put my skeptical glasses on because this is not the first time this has happened with a big embargo, embargoed title with Amazon, but they seem to, like, I think this is done relatively intentionally sometimes. And they managed to not break embargo on the biggest books. Like they didn't accidentally ship Harry Potter book seven early, Um, but they do it on these sort of like buzzy enough for it to matter, but not so buzzy that like all hell would break loose. Because I think that if they had done something like Harry Potter seven, if that had come out into the world early, they would have there would have been penalties. It doesn't look like there are going to be penalties here. Um, also, like an hour ago, I opened my book mail and I now have a hardcover copy weird. of the it's Testaments so from the publisher with the press releases. Um, and it's it's definitely intended to be a reviewer's copy of the book. It has the press release. It has the information about the release date. Nothing on there about please don't run coverage until a certain date. So my guess is that they were planning to sit on those until the embargo was over, until the book had been released. And then once it got out into the world, it was like, why not? Like, It takes about two days for a thing from Random House to reach yeah. my house, and the timing works there, too. So. And it could be a coincidence. Anyway, it could be we're going to get this the same time. It's hard. That's the thing about conspiracy theories, right? Like, In the absence <laughs> of information, any data, you can, you can rebuild the line of the, the rationale to fit. Again, this is one of those situations where I don't think – I don't know if I'm being generous by saying I just think this is incompetence. I think, you know, in, in any situation where you basically have equally good reasons to assume malice or incompetence, you're probably going to be right more often than you're wrong if you assume inco- incompetence. Also, some of it is so small time. Like, so I, I just posted a link and I'll put in the show notes to a Guardian had a piece about this. Um, according to PRH, it sounds like Guardian got an interview with someone over there that would actually give them some juice, said there's about 800 copies in the U.S. only got through the system. I had the weird experience of I had pre-ordered through Amazon, the Testaments. Um, we're going to do a section on The Handmaid's Tales, one of our, um, the phenomenon of The Handmaid's Tales, one of our upcoming bonus episodes. So I wanted to have it good and ready. Kind of wanted to get on the first week, you know, what's going on with it. Got an email on Monday saying, good news, your order of The Testaments will be arriving earlier than expected tomorrow, September 4th. And I was like, well, that's weird. Did they move up the publication date? And I was like, you know, it was Labor Day, so I wasn't thinking too much about it. And then I get onto the company Slack on Tuesday, <laughs> and some people are talking about, like, we're getting these things, and this thing is happening. I was like, oh. And then I, re- I looked again, and I'd gotten another email the same day saying, actually, <laughs> just kidding, it's going to come out as scheduled September 10th. Um, to do that with nefarious of intent seems weird to say the least i think something got screwed up some batch of pre-orders got assigned the wrong release date and they didn't catch it they caught it for some people like me because i didn't get a copy you know from amazon or from review and they didn't some of them got through the net when you're when you're operating with this much water flow 
um, and the dam opens for a second, you're not going to get it, keep all the water in. It's just not going to happen. I just don't see the upside. I just really don't see that. I don't, I don't see the now, because I'm now actually less likely to order from Amazon because they, they give me this weird runaround about when the stuff's coming. Mm. So I, I just don't see the upside to we're going to act in bad faith so that people who would get it elsewhere will go with us on the off chance. I just don't, I don't think yeah. enough of these have gotten out for any, any of the 500,000 print copies that people are going to buy those. What meaningful percentage of those people have any idea something happened? I, I just don't see it. I understand. I can understand that point. I yeah. still don't trust Amazon, but I do think that talking about good faith here, it, it makes sense to sort of pivot the discussion to the publisher yeah. response in that, um, like, PRH has not made any real statements about if like whatever the cause of this was, whether it was intentional. No, in this Guardian piece, they do. They say due to a technical error Mm -hmm. on a part of one of our retails, a small number of customers were inadvertently sent copies of Margaret Edwards' Testaments. We Mm -hmm. apologize for this error. We value our relationship with authors, agents, publishers, and we regret the difficulties as a cause for them and our fellow booksellers. Yeah, there. It just seems to me that there should be some sort of consequence like either an incentive like have to pay the fine as an incentive to figure out a way to not screw up in the future be more competent Mm -hmm. or at the very least like publishers like to pay a lot of lip service to how much they love and value and care about i think that's independent bookstores and um it does not seem to me that the publisher here is responding in a way that actually lives up to that that like the literary internet is filled with independent booksellers talking about reaching out to penguin random house that the aba reaches out to publishers anytime that an embargo is broken like this that it impacts the members of the aba and for penguin random house to be like we really love and value you indies and we don't want to do anything to hurt you except that we're like actually totally in bed with amazon because we don't want to piss them off either <laughs> Mm-hmm. And we don't want to, it seems to me that they don't even want to like slap them on the wrist, um, which is at least a nice gesture to make to. Well, the you know how B2B stuff like this is going to work. Like they're going to be like, I'm so, I mean, look, assuming my read is right, that someone just screwed up. If it's malice, then they're going to fight about it or something. We screwed this up. What can we do? We're going to reduce your require. We're going to give you $200,000 of free onsite advertising. We're going to do some sort of. We call them make goods in our business. If we screw something up, we say, okay, I'm sorry, we messed it up, but we're going to do something to make it good. I mean, I just, so there's a quote from Rachel Cass, and this is like, it makes us look bad. She's an independent bookseller. makes us look bad. It's bigger than this book. Customers will see that people who order online got their books. They will come into our store and see what, we don't have it yet. They won't know or care about hamburgers. They will just see that an Amazon can supply them a book, and we can't. They might not come in next time. Well, that would be true if I could go on Amazon and order it right now, but I can't. I, I can't. If I go to my independent bookstore, say, I saw someone at the Testaments, one of the 800 people in America that have this, I saw someone had it, go give it to me, and they say, I can't because Amazon screwed up, and you still can't even get Amazon, we're all waiting until next week now. I, I just don't see who the victim here is, except Atwood and PRH. I, I don't yeah, feel like the independent I, bookstore is the aggrieved party. I want to see, I want to see then Atwood and PRH like be upset about this because the pieces last week online were about what a big effort it was to coordinate the one day laydown of yeah. this and how much secrecy surrounded the galleys and how only people who needed to read them were getting galleys and anybody who did had to sign an NDA and deal with embargo stuff. Like if you're the person in charge of planning this one day laydown and none of this was supposed to happen and really isn't okay, then you should mm. be royally upset about it. And like, they're like, if it's a mistake, then Amazon unfortunately made a mistake on a really big book with a really complicated one day laydown. And that should be the story. Like Penguin Random House would have some leverage here to make that the story about like Margaret Atwood was going to be doing a big live thing on September 10th to like kick off the one day laydown and release the testaments into the world. Like a lot of care and work has gone into the release of this book and the PR efforts on literal multiple continents. And if this is and the Penguin Random House is basically just responding like this isn't that big of a deal. And I find that to be very perplexing. Oh, I know. I, I would do the same thing if I were them right now. You don't want to step on the book. You don't want to step. You don't want to make this about Amazon versus PRH right now. You want to make you want the testaments to sell. You want to save the story like push the testaments, push Atwood, push. This is like a modern you know franchise this is one of the great satires this is one of the great allegories this is one of the great stories of our time. 
you don't want to be pissing with Amazon about 800 copies in independent bookstores. That's, that's, that's dirt that does you no good at this point. Now, does PRH really feel aggrieved? Does Atwood really feel aggrieved? Maybe. I don't know. Do they think it's a big deal? Maybe. I don't know. We're talking about it. There's pieces about it in The Guardian that's got to be at least annoying. But I wouldn't add any fuel to it. If my goal is to sell Margaret Atwood Testament's books at this moment, I'm not making anything out of this. Maybe I'm raging and throwing chairs in boardrooms <laughs> at 1745 Broadway in Manhattan, but I don't think this does you much good at this point um, to to throw a fit. I mean, I it's kind of like, it's, it's like copyright, though. I think you do have to defend this, even, even if it's just the confides of the B2B relationship, because if Amazon gets rope, Amazon will use rope. Exactly. Right, so I'm guessing that... I don't think PRH is laissez-faire about this. I just don't think we're going to hear about it because it does them no good in the public domain to throw a fit about it. Well, I think there's distinctions, though, that like the public public domain of like general readership isn't ever going to like hear the story of this. Like this is a very industry sort of story that the embargo got broken and Amazon shipped books on the wrong date and PRH is or isn't upset and should or shouldn't be upset and what's happening. Like I think they can do both things of achieve the big picture customer facing mission of now that it's out there, just like let it go. Like this is why there's a galley on or not a galley, but this is why there's a new copy of this on my desk right now as they were like, well, it's out in the world. Let's just send it to reviewers now. Maybe we can continue the momentum but inside the industry like i think there is room to have the conversation about um that this shouldn't have happened that there are consequences for the publisher this is a like an expensive thing if they've got to cancel or change plans and the very top line thing is what you just said that there should be consequences for amazon of this whether it was a mistake or intentional at this volume of 800 books getting out early because if there's no consequence then why not try it with a bigger title or why not just not care about um, paying attention to lay down dates. Yeah. I, I just don't think it's going to matter. I, I mean, in the long run, I think this doesn't matter. I, I can understand why independent bookstores are mad because they already, they have a mental model, right. Of how they're framing this discussion. Like, well, look what Amazon gets to do. And there's no consequences. Well, just because you don't have access to consequences doesn't mean that there are consequences, nor are you, nor are you really entitled to really know. I would be shocked if PRH isn't doing everything they can to make sure the thing doesn't happen again. I mean, the, the truth of it is that 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 thing that undergirds all of this is both both Amazon and PFPRH have too much leverage really to lord it over the other one. Like Amazon sells 60% of books in America, PRH sells 60% of books in America, which means at least 36% of books in America are PRH titles coming through Amazon. They're not going to mess with that because of a, a goof. They just aren't. Like we didn't see PRH get all mad about Madeline Miller going on sale for five bucks at Target. We didn't hear a word about it. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, it's weird. I, I do think if PRH made a big stink and there were sanctions, the headline story on CNN Business that would over that would be a story that would break through the mainstream media is Penguin, world's largest book publisher, sanctions Amazon would be the headline, and that it was the testaments would be like the fourth paragraph, mm-hmm. and it would just kill this. It would just kill whatever was available to the story for them in other words. Anyway, yeah. we're, now, anyway. We're, we're now disagreeing about things we don't, we'll never have any proof about who was right. Well, no, so I'm gonna, assuming it's me. So let's go uh, Obviously. Well, yeah, I obviously. think we're going to know in the next couple of weeks if this book is going to be a big deal or not anyway. Yeah. Like the, the pre-orders were big. The early reviews, I've read a couple, um, are interesting. I don't think we want to say anything no, about the contents nothing. of the book. We don't want to spoil any of y'all who don't want to know. Don't read those reviews if you don't want to know. They are filled Mm. with spoilers. Um, But we're going to know what the general reader thinks about this book after September 10th. And I think that once those early responses start coming out, like by the end of September, I think we'll have a sense of, is this actually going to be one of the biggest books of the year? Or is it a big story without much of the book behind it? Let's do some more sales stuff, but a sponsor first. Okay. Um... Does Reese does Reese's book club move units? Um, does all these other there's like Emma Watson's book club, Andrew Luck's book club, Tonight Show host Jimmy Fallon's book club? Do, do these things work? Do they? And if they do, how do they not? Um, there's a piece in NPR about this. <laughs> do we learn anything in this piece, Rebecca? <laughs> 
Did we learn anything? I was so excited to see this headline. Here's the headline. For many authors, celebrity book clubs are a ticket to success. We don't learn like, as great. much as the headline indicates that but we, do we learn? Might. Do we learn anything? Do we learn anything? Well, maybe. That's a no. That's a no. Maybe. That is learn- a no. Okay. So they interview a woman named Kristen McLean, who is yeah. a book industry analyst with NPD BookScan. Ye old book scan. Ye old and book she's scan. um she's talking specifically about Jenna Bush Hager's book club on the Today Show first. And that the first five books that were chosen by the Read with Jenna Book Club saw a significant boost in their sales, and that those books overperformed by about five hundred percent compared to the rest of the market for fiction during that time. Whether that overperform is due to the mm-hmm. inclusion in the book club is anybody's guess um the ceo of reese witherspoon's production company hello sunshine talks a little bit about the size of witherspoon's audience um witherspoon has picked 26 books and according to bookscan those titles have sold 700 percent better than the average 21 of her picks were fiction they accounted for two percent of all fiction sales during that time period and of course the big phenomena where the crawdads sing by delia owens which has sold 1.3 million copies and sits there the thing that is not mentioned here mm-hmm. that like is the variable i want somebody to figure out a way to include in an analysis is a lot of these books that they pick are already books yes. that have a lot of publicity behind them. Yes. So she's number not picking, one, she's not picking tin house soft covers, right? In translation, she's not. Like, how did these people become aware of these books? Probably because the publicists have yeah. been instructed to focus time and effort and resources i.e. money, on getting visibility for these big titles. They have, these are budgets that have a lot of book, books that have a lot of budget, man. It's been a long week, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Witherspoon, she's picking these, right? Like the Secrets We Kept has a lot of publicity behind it. I assume there's a lot of advertising. We already talked about it. You were talking about budget, right. independent booksellers on tables right. at they BEA were in the summer. Featuring it at BEA. Yeah. Like that's that's a thing. And it was probably going to perform better than the average, whether we, Reese Witherspoon picked it or not. So that the 700% better than the average is like how much better actually is that? We don't The average sells squat. The average much. is squat. So it's seven times better than squat. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Seven sure. times better than squat. There's a show title. <laughs> I think this the the fact that this piece doesn't have much information but feels like it should points to this sense that we have in the industry that like that these big selections do make a difference, right? Like where the crawdads sing was probably not going to sell 1.3 million copies if Reese Witherspoon didn't talk about it. But do we even it. know that though? We, we were we just talking don't. about this in Slack the other day. This says, this, the sense here is Witherspoon's recommendation helped turn one debut novelist book into a genuine phenomenon. Delia Owens, where the crowded sing, sold more than 1.3 million copies and been sitting at or near the top of all the bestseller lists for almost two years. There's nothing, after the colon, everything is right. But we have no idea how Witherspoon's recommendation does not correlate to any spike in sales. It's just been selling ever since. It hasn't dipped since then. Like, and they don't tell us the 26 books, and according to BookScan, those titles are almost 700% better than the average. Is that an aggregate? Are they averaging the sales? Because where the crawdads sing alone could skew the data just because it was included in one of her picks. Like That's this true. whole thing hinges on Witherspoon mentioning where the crawdads sing and including in her data set. If she hadn't mentioned it and it still sells, we don't have an article here. But we also yeah. can't connect it. Like, I guess this is where I'm coming down on. Unless we. If we have a question about whether or not these book clubs matter, then they don't matter. Does that make sense? Like, if it's in question whether or not they move units, then they probably don't, because otherwise we would know. It's not Oprah. Oprah's a different thing. Like, we were talking about this on the Interpreter of Maladies um, episode mm-hmm. that you haven't yet heard. But, like, in the, in the day, it was like Oprah said it. They were, there were copies in Target in special Faulkner packs where people were buying at Target three packs of Faulkner novels by the hundreds of thousands. That matters. This is supposition and circumstantial. I guess it's possible, but I, I feel like this, this, this perpetuates a narrative that is very, very much in, in yeah. doubt. I think what we need is a year with no book clubs. Let's get ourselves a baseline. You get a baseline, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know how you would do this. I guess maybe what you would try to do is say for summer 2020, say here's a cohort of 40 books that are all kind of in the same buzz 
strata, right? Mm-hmm. These are the, you know throw them into a pot, and we're gonna we're gonna and you know they're, they're, we think they're gonna get sort of the same publisher, kind of same idea. They kind of are on the same cohort. Which of them get picked by Reese Witherspoon, and which one don't? And how do those sales line up? But even then, we don't know because I, I, I'm just I'm just I'm not convinced that Witherspoon on Instagram is making Delia Owens where the product seeing more than 1.3 million copies. Because if it were true, how many copies of the other books that she mentions have they sold? We don't get any of that data here. None of it. Yeah, I think this now really just goes up. back now to I'm like mad about that, bad well, data. Like, <laughs> well, bad data is very, very it's maddening. maddening. Like, word of mouth is the magic thing yes. with sales of many kinds of products. And it's also the most difficult thing to capture. And really, that's what celebrity book clubs are. It's just a bigger mouth it's like lighter um, that, fluid like you may or may not have a fire after it but for a moment it's like, yeah and and then, i think that's I why know. like this it's notable like not every book that gets picked for reese's yeah. book club goes big this where the right. crawdads saying is still a very big deal and it is an outlier among her recommendations that book might have caught on anyway but maybe mm. it just caught on faster because she had the megaphone like she is a big mouth that goes to you know the other people who are probably like the ones who are picking the books for their book clubs. And if they like it, then those are big book recommending mouths that are talking in the word of mouth game. This is, I want to stop talking about mouths now. Um, it's like, it's just really hard to measure, but yeah. it feel it, it feels meaningful and it's really hard to know if there's a there there. It does feel like it should matter. Like that Reese Witherspoon has 1.1 million followers on Instagram and it's the kind of audience that's going to buy debut literary fiction with beautiful covers. Like that's there's another there's sort of a Witherspoon like niche which mm-hmm. is worth in its own article. I'm not denigrating. It's like you're not. I haven't seen a surprise sort of Witherspoon pick yet. Whereas in Oprah, I mean the Faulkner one blew me away because it was a yeah. backlist and super hard. Uh, complete awe of Oprah's book club. I still have to say even now, I just I'm just not sure um, what there is to make of this. I just don't know. I just am just really, I was so, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. They're going to get something. And now I just don't know. I guess if we had book scan, maybe we could do this. Like if we just took those 20, if we could pick the mm-hmm. 25 books, not including where the crawdads sing, do we still have a story? I don't think we do. I, I feel like we don't have a story. So all of it is hinging on whether or not Witherspoon had anything to do with where the crawdads sing, which I just don't know that that's reasonable my guess it's more something like this is if you get mentioned by one of these few key celebrities who care about this stuff and whose followers care about it your chance of being out of scale seller increases by like nine percent that's all that it is it's probably just as simple as that because it doesn't guarantee anything at all this other story weirdly counteracts the idea of literary influence in celebrity right in -hmm. its own way this thing about the sally rooney craze yeah. I thought this was really more interesting. Not surprising. I really like Constance Grady on Vox. I've had her on Annotated when we were talking about the um, the Handbook for Immortals uh, crap show, I believe is the technical term <laughs> for what that was. So for those of you who listened to this show, you probably saw on Instagram and other places a whole bunch of people who care about literary fiction talking about normal people by Sally Rooney over the spring and summer. It felt like, as Constance said, it sucked all the air out of the room when it came out in the, in the, the U.S. in April I saw a lot of people talking about this book online, and it showed up in a bunch of different places. And for all of that, it has sold, according to BookScan, um, their ears must be burning, sold just (laughs) under 64,000 units in hardcover in the U.S. in the fourth month since it's been out. Which is, for literary fiction, not bad, but for Delia Owens, she calls that 10 days um, of where the crowd dead (laughs) sing. Which I guess we know, too, that you know, the the literati in New York who talk about books like mm-hmm. this and Instagram about it and have followers and, you know, email news, substack newsletters only mean so much. Like it hasn't broken through to become anything other than, I guess, a kind of a fishbowl hit. Yeah, and I haven't I read the book. I have no idea if it's great or not, but that's a fish. There's a fishbowl element here. And I thought this was really interesting to look at. Yeah, I think way. the fishbowl hit is a great way to describe it. That um, if you're in the industry or you're paying attention to a lot of bookish stuff online, you have seen this everywhere. If you are rank and file book club member, um, average American heavy reader, which is defined as reading 12 books a year or more, like yeah. you still don't know who Sally Rooney no, no idea. is. This is not rising to, it's not crossing the threshold of your awareness in any way. But if you're in the bookish internet, it looks like everybody is reading these books. Um mm-hmm. But it's really the 
sort of the industry darling in the same way, you know, that like a few years ago, it seemed like everybody was reading Nausgaard and it was really like the same 20 people talking about Nausgaard. Yeah, over and over. Right. It says here, um, Constance writes, normal people became an Instagram status symbol endorsed by celebrities like Lena Dunham and Taylor Swift and Emily's whose name I can't pronounce. Though I read it before. Rada Jakowski. So getting the same Instagram juice that Reese supposedly gives and yet here it is 64,000 copies, which might be 700% of the average seller, I should say. The average mm-hmm. literary fiction debut sells functionally zero books. So I guess both of these narratives could be true in their own way, but lead you to vastly different conclusions. Here's my take. Some books are hits, some <laughs> books are mentioned on Instagram, and sometimes they're both. And one doesn't have anything to do anything with the other. Let's That's do where algebra. That's where I want to be at three o'clock on a. You're, you're welcome night. for this. Boy, I'm really, I'm really fired up about <laughs> you, this stuff. Why, really why do are. I care about this? I don't know. Why and do I, I think, care about people I, making claims about this? It, it's I, a very strange place for me to care about. You know, I think that this is probably where we should end for our health and the yes. health of our listeners. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair enough. Just say you don't know. That's okay. It's okay to say you don't know why things happen. Helps everybody. You can. One more sponsor. One more sponsor. Okay. Now, uh, we jumped around. Jenny? Jenny Lawson? Authors yeah, and bookstores. About, we love these stories. We do. We love these. And Jenny Lawson, so beloved. If you've yes. been on the internet for a while, you have read the blog S mm. at one point or another. She is opening a bookstore bar in San Antonio. It's called Nowhere Bookshop. Um, She first announced the plans to do this in April, apparently considered a few other um, buildings, including a church off of South Alamo that formerly housed a failed hot dog business. Um, I will move to your city and help your hot dog business (laughs) succeed. And hit me up if you're looking to fund a bookstore hot dog place. Do you think they would be frank with us about why their hot dog business went under? Oh, Oh, Jeff. Actually, the hot dog business was called Frank. Yes, it was. <laughs> William Shatner tweeted about this, which is very Frank's exciting. Um, the bookstore is going to have, um, I think, some workspace in it. Hmm. She it says, you know, you won't have to resort to squinting at your Hemingway paperback. You'll be able to like have a mojito and pick up your books. Um, if any like big internet personality can. Yeah capitalize on that reputation and success. And Jenny Lawson is also the author of a few books. Um, It seems to me that she has a shot at doing it. Now, anybody who is not from the book business who attempts to open a bookstore without a whole lot of research is is in for a world of, um, I think, surprising discoveries Mm. about what that actually entails. But Jenny Lawson seems like a smart woman and she has publishing connections. And so I'm going to hope that she has done her research and has good advisors here and knows what she's getting into but interesting to see this i'm heartened that like it feels good to me i think the kids are all right that people with money to spend are continuing to do it opening bookstores and i should say this i do love the generic ella fitzgerald playing hardwood floor independent bookstore you know what i'm talking about oh yeah jenny lawson's store will not be that she is idiosyncratic i think Mm -hmm. is a way of putting it there probably will be lots of taxidermy so it'll like be a destination in itself, like just a thing to go see. Yeah, I, I feel like the event lineup at this yes. bookstore could be very interesting. Yeah, really cool. All right, that's our show. Um, I got to go cool down, take a shower. <laughs> I, I don't know what's what's going on with me today. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Podcast at bookwrite.com. You can find links to the show notes to this and all back episodes of the Bookwrite Podcast at bookwrite.com slash listen. Find all our great podcasts there. We're not the only one. Go check them out. Rebecca, I'll talk to you soon. It's all the time now with this. I don't know what's going on. It'll be soon. Have a good one.